Good morning to you all. Our text today, by way of surprise, comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 17. Please could you turn there now. Some years ago, we screened a rather special film here in this hall, and you might remember that. It was called The End of the Spear, and it told the story of a man named Jim Elliott who was martyred in his efforts to reach the Couture Indians of Ecuador. His wife, Elizabeth, went on to live a full and productive life of faith, and she actually died very recently. She died this year in June. And this is what she said about our topic today. The will of God is not something you add to your life. It is a course that you choose. You either line yourself up with the Son of God, or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. And the principle that governs the rest of the world can only be the principle and will of Satan. And as Christians, we don't want to live under that dominion at all. And as those saved by Christ, we have absolutely no need to. Our text today will help us to think about and understand more about what God's will is for our lives. And I pray that that understanding will become action and through that will come blessings for us and glory to God. So let's read our passage then, Ephesians 5 verse 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of God is. This word therefore at the beginning of verse 17 is a kind of a bridge back to verse 16. It's placed there to create some tension and urgency in the reader. And the Greek is written in a thing called the present active imperative tense, which means that it is a strong and continual call to pay attention to what is going on around you. Now, you might think that's a bit unnecessary. After all, you might be saying, well, I'm born again, I can tell good for evil, and I know what to do with it. Yes, you do up to a point. But the problem is that we aren't dealing with a bit of evil now and then maybe a smidgen in two hours time and then a break for 15 minutes and then a really big huge dollop of evil we're swimming in it all of the time Paul writes that the days are evil not that the moments are evil is it a day today? is it? yes, then it is evil and sadly we have often become expert swimmers When I studied biology at high school, I recall being told about a thing called accommodation. And no, that's not what Aucklanders spend their lives looking for. But it describes some biological processes that happen in all of us. And there are three of these. There is accommodation of the eye, there is physiological accommodation, and histological accommodation. And it's the second one I want to talk about, physiological accommodation. And it describes the way that our body's responses to that they get used to stimuli if they are frequently or gradually applied. And for example, if I were to come and chuck a bucket of cold water over your head or punch you in the face, sorry, in the, on the arm, I mean, you will jump immediately, won't you? But if I just cool the room down very, very slowly over a long period, or maybe I just pressed against your shoulder g- gently, you may or may not even notice at all. You just get used to these things, so you don't see them. It's just like that with these evil days that we live in. We're too used to them. 
the evil in them no longer surprises or shocks us and so we don't respond to it in the proper way anymore. And that's why we have to be reminded, friends, breathe, slow down, look around and be wise. That's all good. So, what is wise? Is it wise to use rational propositions founded on robust intellectual debate? Does wisdom come from studying the sayings of philosophers and heroes from long ago? Well, yes. Yes, sometimes it does. We can't dismiss these sources out of hand just because the people who said or wrote them might not be Christians. As believers, we don't have a monopoly on wisdom. But what we do have, by the grace of God, is the hub, the fountain, the very source of all wisdom contained in his holy person. In Proverbs 2, we can read these pointed words. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of righteousness and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. So, we do not have to go very far to find wisdom, do we? Because we can just ask our Heavenly Father for it. And scripture promises us that when we do, he will give it to us. James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, what, what should we do? Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Okay. How do we, how do we actually receive that wisdom? Will there be a loud heavenly voice saying, Yo, Dave, bet on that horse. Sometimes. Sometimes that happens, but it's pretty unusual and it probably won't have anything to do with bets and horses. The most usual source is this. God may speak to us directly or show us wisdom through His Spirit, through a vision or something like that, but He's already given us a very large and comprehensive volume of wisdom within the pages of the Bible. So read it. That's a new message, isn't it? Read it and live it because the days are evil and we do not want to become so accommodated, so used to them, that we forget who we are in Jesus. Saved. Redeemed by His blood. We were lost to God because of our sin and therefore the only thing that we were looking forward to, <laughs> that's the wrong word, is our just punishment in hell when our lives ended. But because God loved us and wanted us back, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and take our punishment so that we could be reconciled to him. And since it is so, since it has been accomplished by divine love and grace, then our part is to serve the Lord in the same love and grace by being his witnesses here on earth, to show his wisdom to stand against these evil days 
so that more people will come to know his salvation and to do God's will so that his kingdom may come. A little while back I asked the question, what is wise? And I hope that we've answered that. But now the text begs another question. If we are to seek to understand God's will, then we must also ask, well, what is his will? And that's not an especially easy question to answer briefly. There are lots and lots of texts that speak specifically about the Lord's will, but, of course, all of Scripture could be said to be an explanation of God's will. And given the size of that possibility, we're obviously going to have to restrict ourselves to just a very, very brief overview of the subject. To begin with, we cannot ever say that when we speak of God's will, that we can always and invariably understand why he does things. And that's unfortunate. Since as humans, the word why is very important to us when we are required to be obedient. And inevitably, the concept of obedience is very strongly tied together with this word will in this context. We need a motive or a reason for our obedient work because it means that what we are doing has value and is therefore worth some blood and sweat. However, as much as we might like it, we will not always get that why from God. Sometimes it's just, follow me. And why should we have a problem with that? Our reluctance to to unquestionably follow other humans is founded on the knowledge that for a lot of reasons we're going to be badly hurt or let down if we're not careful about who we follow. But the Lord is never like that. Never. He is good and he is always good and there is never any wavering from that position. And therefore we can have absolute confidence that if we follow, when he says follow, that the, ultimate, the, the outcome will ultimately be good for us. Now, I must be honest here. I don't want to suggest that it will always be sweetness and light whilst we follow because bluntly to follow God sometimes means that we will suffer and even die because we did so. Jim Elliot was killed by those Indians in Ecuador for his faith. So what? As children of God, we have the promise of eternity in heaven with our Lord. And when we are there, I am very, very certain that what seems so painful and large here on earth will seem as nothing when we are there. So we must follow where the Lord wills, whether we know why or not. It is enough to know that it is His will and that He is good. Now all that said, the actuality is that most of the time we do know what God wants from us and that is because it is written down for us in Scripture. And this is proven by Romans 2 verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. Now, remember when this was written that there wasn't a New Testament, was there? So let's get that idea out of the the way that we can only understand God's will from reading the second part of our book. Or that because we are modern Christians, we are somehow cleverer than they were way back then. 
No. 2,000 years ago, Jews informed, just by the Old Testament, knew God's will. So, given the benefit of both Testaments now, how much better should we understand it? Therefore, the first thing we can say about God's will is that for by far the largest part, it can be known, it isn't mysterious and hidden, only to be understood if you spend 50 years praying and fasting somewhere in a cave. It's in a book that can be easily read by anyone. The next point is that it can be proved. Once again, we turn to the book of Romans for illustration. Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The internet is a bit of a blessing and a curse. I'm in two minds about shopping there. On the one hand, I like the convenience of being going online and being able to buy stuff and that the price is generally a bit lower. But one of the things I'm very uncomfortable about is not being able to, to hold a thing, you know, and see if it really is as wonderful as the vendor says it is. I don't believe that exaggerating the benefits of goods for sale is a purely modern problem. I'm pretty sure that the same thing happened in Paul's time. So he'd have understood that people would be suspicious about the claims of this new Christian thing. Maybe this Christian God was just some guy selling dodgy stuff out of the back of a van. No. Try it. Prove it, Paul writes here, and you will find that the will of God is good and acceptable. But wait, there is more. We may know the will of God, we may be invited to prove that it works, but maybe trying, just trying to do it is going to be something from the bottom of the two hard baskets. But what does the Lord's Prayer say about God's will? It says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I've prayed, I've always seen these words as an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, that things on earth ought to be like they are in heaven, where God's will reigns over all. We're saying, yes, Lord, make that happen. Use us for that purpose. And, of course, that meaning doesn't change, but it's never occurred to me before that they also show us the universal effectiveness and possibility of God's will throughout creation. It isn't as if stuff that is possible in heaven somehow isn't possible on earth because the environment isn't right or because humans are somehow lacking in the ability to do it. No, God's will can be done here on earth just the same as it is in heaven and so we have no reason to think that it is too hard for us to do. So that's three things that we've learned about God's will. It can be known, it can be proved and it can be done. What else can we discover about it in Scripture? Are are there some more specific instructions? Well, here's a clue. In preparation for this sermon, I found a list of 26 important Scriptures relating to God's will. 
And to spare you from me reading all 26, I went through and categorized them in various ways because a lot of them do have a similar theme. However, if you would like a list of them for further study, please come and see me after the service. I think you'd find them useful. Unsurprisingly, the prevalent message amongst those scriptures is one of obedience. God wants us to know and to do his will. And nearly half of these passages talk directly about that desire. Now, at this point, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. Why? It's because that I'm afraid that by telling you what I found in this condensed way, by not painfully reading out all those 13 verses, instead just leaving this as a tiny sound bite in the middle of a long sermon, you're going to miss hearing its importance. So I'm going to say it again, quite loud. God wants us to know and to do His will. Have you got that? I don't need to give the sound guys a bigger problem. Here's the obvious thing then. If there are so many verses that tell us this, then we'd better believe that we ought to be listening. And trust me, just because I mentioned 26 texts here, don't imagine that's all there are. When I did a search for the word will in the Bible, I got the result that there were no less than 6,457 occurrences in the New King James Version. So, do you want to bet that we can't find some more verses that speak about obedience? Hmm? But I have a question. Yes, we should obey, but why should we obey? Why can't I just get on and do my best? After all, God did give me a free will, or is he on some sort of power trip or something? For an answer, let me read this to you from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The Lord wants us to know and do his will simply because he knows that it is good for us because it reaches and nourishes and enlivens every part of us not just temporarily like honey but forever for eternity the Lord wants us to know and do his will because he loves us and he wants the best for us what is that? what is the best? it is that we should be raised up brought back to life from the death of sin brought into the family of God and then brought into our eternal home in heaven. And we can be sure of this because amongst those 26 texts on God's will, there is one very specific one about this exact subject, John 6.40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
So, so why on earth would we ever resist? If there is one thing that I would love for you to go away from here with today, just one thing heard and taken on board in between fantasizing the return of summer and the roast beef in the oven, it is this. I will seek to know and do God's will. Can you repeat that with me? I will seek to know and do God's will. You got that? That's good. I don't feel quite so uncomfortable now. However, we aren't quite finished with the topic yet because there are some other themes in my 26 texts that are too important not to specifically mention. And there are a few, so I'm going to whistle through them. But I believe it's worthwhile to pay attention because there are some gems here. First up, it's a well-known saying that knowledge is power. Would you like some power? I surely would like some power. Then, get to know God's will. Colossians 1.9 says this. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. A direct product of knowing God's will is wisdom and spiritual understanding. And these are worthy prizes for any believer because they do bring us power. God's power is made alive in our daily lives. Another verse with a very clear link between knowing God's will and a particular outcome is 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, although we have a very specific type of sin mentioned here, which is abstaining from sexual immorality, it is clear that in a more general sense, God's will is that all believers should be participants in the lifelong process of sanctification. Remember, that means the process by which we become more and more like Jesus in nature and by which we are slaves to sin less and less. And this is a very useful check. I've mentioned this before. I wonder if anybody remembers. What do these letters mean? WWJD. What would Jesus do? Exactly. Most of us well, most of the time, it's very obvious what Jesus would do in our situation. But there are some things that we aren't too sure about. So we can ask ourselves that question. What would Jesus do? That's easy. But what would Jesus do? How can we answer that if we don't know anything about his character? And that's why there's a little thing called theology. Literally, the word theology means knowledge of God. And that's something that not one believer can ever be said never to need. We all need to know about God because it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to work with him in becoming like Jesus if we do not know the person we are supposed to be like. And this, folks, is where I grieve. Because one attitude I encounter among Christians sometimes is that theology is hard, and a bit weird 
And so it's for the pastor only and maybe some of the elders and those strange scholarly types with spectacles and grey hair. Let me say this very clearly then. This is entirely the wrong attitude. If this is what you believe, then you need to think again. Please think again. I know that hearing words like perichoresis can be scary and a major turn off. Yes, understanding the deep things of God can be a little difficult, but the result is always illuminating and rewarding and, dare I say it, sanctifying. But the problem is that many folk are still paddling around in the shadows, theologically speaking, and they shouldn't be there anymore because they've been Christians for a long, long time. And it's not so difficult to get to the deep end. There are so many, many books that will help us to understand Scripture, and of course the Internet is just its bursting as a resource. And what's more, if you have the passion to learn, then you will always encounter the passion to teach. I've already shared my grief that some folk do think this way, but I also want to tell you of the joy in my heart when somebody comes and asks me a searching question. Maybe I don't know the answer. But we can find out then, together. And I know that this joy, this hope is shared by many folk in many congregations. So that help is always there, but often wasted. And folks, this might sound like a bit of a soapbox rant, but it is directly and inescapably tied to our theme today of knowing God's will. Because I promise you that the knowledge of His will will never be delivered neatly bound to your postbox in the form of 32 explicit rules. We need to ask about, we need to search out His will and His character, and then we will know. Now this brings us to another text in 1 Thessalonians, and that is chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If some evidence was needed that God's intentions for us are good, then these verses would fit the bill. It isn't God's desire that we should be downcast and oppressed and serious throughout our lives, but that we should be thankful and rejoicing. And this isn't ever supposed to be a big false smile. Look at me! I'm a joyful, joyful Christian, and Christians are always happy and smiling because we're saved. Wouldn't you like to be a smiley, happy Christian too? That doesn't fool anyone. It just makes Christians look like nut jobs. No. The Lord would love for us to be constantly content, constantly thankful, constantly rejoicing, but only if it is genuine and heartfelt. And there is only one thing that can fuel that kind of life, and it isn't winning Powerball and Big Wednesday in the same week. While it is true that there are many things on earth here that make us happy, None of these things were lost. And none of them can be the wellspring for true inner joy. 
that profound rapture will only come from grasping the truth and promise of our salvation. Jesus died for my sins. I am a child of God. I can approach my heavenly Father without fear. I can ask and he will hear and answer me. I will spend eternity with him. And I reckon those are things worth giving thanks for and worth being joyful about every minute of every day. And it is God's will that we should be that way. It is his his hope that we should share his excitement about our relationship. What a truly wonderful God we serve. Now we've spoken quite a bit about heart attitudes as they relate to our topic today. But as with all things holy, our intentions are validated by our actions. It is one thing to be affected by the will of God, but if we are so, then we must also demonstrate the will of God. How could it be that we have such power in us if it does not show at all? And it is meant to show. First Peter 2.15 reads like this. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, I've come out with a few very well-known sayings. Well, here's another one. You talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? And there's nothing more the world loves than to see a Christian singing. Singing. Sinning. They love to see a Christian sinning. Look at that. What a hypocrite. Who do they think they are coming on so perfect and holy? And after that, it doesn't matter what feats of reason and logic we may use to point out that sin is exactly why we all need Christ and that no sane Christian ever claims to be perfect. We will never, ever convince our accusers. And this is why, as James said, faith without works is dead. God does not want us to be silent believers. His will is that we should be active, not just with the testimony of our mouths, but with the touch of our hands when help is needed. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What is doing justly? We already know that. It's feeding and clothing the poor, helping the widow in her distress, comforting the afflicted. It is entertaining the stranger and helping your flooded out neighbour to shovel the mud from his driveway. We already know what to do, but perhaps we do not understand how much this work will advance the kingdom of God and how much it is the will of God that we should do it. That's not all First Peter has to tell us because in as much as we have learned what we ought to be doing, we can also read a little bit, little bit later in chapter 4 what we ought not to do. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. 
So, all the stuff that the world thinks is cool and fun is not the will of God. We know this because of this passage says, Jesus knew that this kind of behavior was man-serving and not God-serving. So, he wouldn't do it anymore. Serving men may temporarily be fun, it is true, but just like the next morning's hangover, in the end, it only brings pain. Well, we've covered quite a lot of ground here. So, in closing, I will briefly summarise. God's will can be known and proved and done. Its principal call and end is the obedience of his people. God wants us to know and do his will. You remember that? Obedience and conformity to his will is the best thing we can do for ourselves because it is the best thing that God can intend for us. He is a good God and does only good things for his children. And then there are some very specific intentions listed in Scripture. God's will is that all those who believe in his son Jesus will be raised up to have everlasting life. A direct product of knowing God's will is wisdom and spiritual understanding. God's will is that we would be sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like sin. The Lord has a deep desire that his people should be fulfilled and joyful at all times. We must do good deeds because they are God's will. We should not do bad deeds because they are the opposite, the will of man. So, through the study of Scripture, supported by the writings of wise men and women of God, we can get to understand a great deal of God's character, which is, after all, an expression of His will. And this way, we will know how to act like Him, and if we act like Him, then we will certainly be fulfilling His will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sharing with us today some of your specific desires and hopes for us. Lord, I pray that they would penetrate and that they would make a difference in us from this day forward. That we would remember who we are serving, put you first and ourselves second. Lord, I pray that we will do and obey your will. In Jesus' name, Amen.